So it's May 20th, 2013 at Bhaktivedanta Manor, London, England, and we were asked to give a two-part seminar on the Bhagavatam. So what we're going to do is today is part one, tomorrow is part two. Today we're going to look at the value of the Bhagavatam, and so today we're going to look at the what, and tomorrow we're going to look at the how. So today is the value, and then tomorrow is how do you get that value? Today, what is the treasure? Tomorrow, how do you find it? Is that all right? Is that okay? Yes? Okay. So the verse that we're going to, that kind of invocation verse we're going to use is this glorification of the Bhagavatam, Canto 1, Chapter 3, Text 43. Translation by Srila Prabhupada. This Bhagavata Purana is as brilliant as the sun, and it has arisen just after the departure of Lord Krishna to his own abode, accompanied by religion, knowledge, etc. Persons who have lost their vision due to the dense darkness of ignorance in the age of Kali shall get light from this Purana. So, what do we find in the Bhagavatam? Well, you could say the first thing, the most obvious answer, is that we find philosophy. We find answers to the real questions of life. And those answers cannot be found, as far as I know, this thoroughly anyplace else. If you read the other scriptures of the world, you will not get the kind of detailed answers as you will find in the Bhagavatam. So other scriptures may tell you God is great, God is the creator, gives you a list of rules of how to live in the world, don't wear this kind of clothes, don't eat this kind of food, don't do this, do this, and don't do this. But what philosophy does the Bhagavatam give us? The philosophy gives us, the Bhagavatam goes from past the Bhagavad Gita, the nature of the soul, the movements of the living entity, how we're moving from one body to another, how we get our different karma, how we get entangled in this world, the forest of material enjoyment, how the whole world is moving, movements of time according to the atom, how all the planets are moving, how everything was created in detail. Again, other scriptures may just say, God said, let there be light, and then there was water, and then there was sky, and then there was earth, and in about four or five verses, they're finished with the creation. Whereas we have chapter after chapter going into detail how the Lord expands in the different purushas and breathes out the universes, how the different elements combine together. If you were to have the misfortune, as I did, of having to take a graduate level course on the philosophy of research, and you find out uh, how people try to guess at what is the process by which the living, living entity perceives things? How do we see? How do we hear? Is anything real or does it exist only as perceptions in the mind? What's the relationship between the self, the mind, the senses, and the sense objects? And they can't figure it out at all. They have this speculation and that, when I took that course, I said, oh, that's mental speculation. <laughs> that's what Prabhupada means by mental speculation. <laughs> So I just sat in the back and 
read songs, but anyway. So they're trying to guess these things, and this is all in the second and third canto of the Bhagavatam. What is the relationship between the soul, the mind, the senses, the sense objects? How do we interact with the world? And of course, then the philosophy of the ultimate reality, Brahmeti, Paramatmeti, Bhagavaniti, Sabjute, the different manifestations of the absolute. Most religions and philosophy only know Brahman or maybe Brahman and Paramatma. The all-pervading or God as the creator, God as the father, the maintainer, he who gives out the material energy, the witness, the friend, the abode, like that. And they don't go beyond that. Very unusual to get information of Bhagavan. And if you go to other Vedic scriptures which does give this information, then those other scriptures are also full of karma and jnana and dhyan. They're mixed. They're saying, yes, okay, there's Bhagavan, but worship him to go to Swarga. Or the ultimate goal, yes, there's Bhagavan, but the ultimate goal is merging with the Brahman, or the ultimate goal is mystic cities, or something like that. So, Kaitiva Dharma, this cheating religion, is thrown out of the Bhagavatam. The Bhagavatam tells us about it. The Bhagavatam gives us instances of persons who wanted to go to heaven, or persons who wanted to merge with the Brahman. And shows us how all of this is cheating religion and only prema is the highest truth. So if one wants to understand, if one wants knowledge, if one wants to understand the truth, that should be the most basic criteria to be a religion. (laughs) You know, nowadays, uh, religion is defined as anything which answers ultimate questions of life and has symbols and a process for trying to achieve it. That's kind of like saying food is anything you put in your mouth. You can put all kinds of things in your mouth that aren't food. The definition of food should be that which nourishes you. Yeah. Right. So the real definition of religion should be that which satisfies you. The dharma that gives you satisfaction. That when you experience it, it brings you happiness. So the Bhagavatam also is not just philosophy. If you could imagine 12 cantos of philosophy, who would read it? few people. (laughs) The Bhagavatam is not just philosophy. All the philosophy is in the context of what's the philosophy packaged in? Stories. The whole Bhagavatam is a big story. There's all the sages at Namasharanya getting blackened by the smoke and not getting anywhere. And they go to Sutta Goswami and there's Romaharshan Sutta who gets killed with the Kusha straw. And, and then, and, I mean, what stories? And then inside that story, there's Maharaj Parikit who somehow gets angry when he gets thirsty and puts the dead snake around the sage's neck and then gets cursed to die by a snake bird. Sounds like a dragon. 
in seven days and goes to the Ganga. And then inside that story, there's so many other stories. Kardava Muni and Devahuti who have a flying city. The demons and the demigods who fight on red-faced monkeys and black-faced monkeys and deformed human beings and vultures and fish. There's so many amazing stories. It's not just philosophy. It's not just, okay, this happened, this is this. It's not like that. Every single verse of the Bhagavatam is inside of a story. And it's in, most of them are inside of a story that's inside of a story that's inside of a story that's inside of a story, which psychologists say is the kind of stories that human beings like the most. Stories within stories. And we're wired to like stories because Krishna likes stories because that's what he does. Stories. All the time. By Leela, he's doing stories. Stories means, if you can remember way back when, when you were in school, there's an introduction, a rising action, a crisis, a falling action, and a conclusion. You all remember that? Or did you just write that on the exam and then forget about it? So to be a story, there has to be some suspense. You meet the characters, then there's some problem, and there's suspense, and you don't know what's going to happen, and is this going to happen, or is that going to happen, and there's some kind of crisis, or some kind of climax, or some kind of problem. How are we going to solve the problem? And then there's a decision made, and then there's the results of that decision, and then there's everything tied up at the end in a nice little conclusion. Right, so that first you meet Ambarish, the great king, Savaimana Krishna Padaravindayo, and he's, he's following a codice, and you set the stage, and then you have this Durvasa comes, and he goes, and you have this rising action, and then there's this crisis where he creates this demon to kill Ambarish. And then what's going to happen? And then he's chased all over the universe by the Sudarshan chakra. And finally he comes and apologizes. And then at the conclusion, Ambarish and Dravasa become friends. <laughs> so there's story after story like that. And we are designed as souls to relish such stories. Krishna has such stories himself in Goloka Vrindavan over and over and over again. He's in the stories and he likes hearing about the stories. You know, every night there's dramas of stories in Goloka Vrindavan. You know that, right? There's entertainment in Goloka Vrindavan. And then before Krishna goes to bed, Mother Yasoda tells him a story, and she says, one time, Krishna, there was this little boy named Prahlad, and she tells him a story. So we also like stories. And stories are the most powerful means for changing one's values. And there's a whole science behind that, which I don't have time to tell right now. But people's values, their character, culture, are formed more through stories than practically any other way. Therefore, every society has transmitted its culture and its values through stories. If you think about how has the modern secular, you know what secular means? Modern secular culture. So secular means no God. That you do not, it's the opposite of chakra, chakra, shastra chakshus, thank you. It's the opposite of shastra chakshus, just like in this verse, 
we have nastudisham. They don't have any vision. So secular is nastudisham instead of shastra chakshus. Instead of having the vision of seeing things through the philosophy of theology, you see everything materially. That's what secular means. All the explanations for everything is absent theology. Does that make sense? If you read a newspaper or a magazine or watch the news on television or like that, will they explain the day's events through religion and philosophy? No, I'll explain. Or you go to school, they'll explain it all through materialism. And life is just materialistic. That's secular. When we were producing our children's books, we looked at dozens and dozens of different reading schemes And the thing that jumps out at you the most is that there was no God. There was no religion. Even if they wanted to be very multicultural and show people having different festivals, God was absent from the festivals. So here's an Indian family celebrating Diwali. But there's no Ram. There's just lights. (laughs) So this is secular. Secular also means individuals will interpret their life sans religion when people understand why did i get sick why is this happening what is what is that what's my purpose in life they know they don't use shastra chakshus they don't use a lens of religion that's what secular means and secularism has two branches one called positivism one called post-positivism or modernism and post-modernism which have nothing to do with time by the way And positivism means there is an objective truth that you can understand through your senses and logic. That's what we call scientific method. And post-positivism is there's absolutely no absolute truth, which you can think about that for a little bit. There's absolutely no absolute truth. Whatever anybody decides is truth for them is truth for them. So these are the two brands of secularism that are circling the globe. You've run into these, I assume, yes? One of them is there's an objective, absolute truth that's material, and you can only understand it through material means. That's what we call the hard sciences. And the other is there's absolutely no absolute objective truth, which is, of course, an absolute statement of objective truth. And uh, everybody just finds their own truth. Everybody can find their own meaning, and everyone's truth and everyone's meaning is equally true or equally untrue, I suppose. So how have these ideas spread all over the world? Through somebody arguing them logically through philosophy? No, through stories. And how were the stories transmitted? You all know the answer to this. Through the media, yes? Yes? How is it that even in very religious societies, most people have now become secular? Because they watch television and movies. What are they watching? Philosophy? Are they watching philosophy? When they turn on the television, there's some deep philosophical discussion of whether the absolute truth is material or spiritual. No, they're just watching stories. Hmm? And these stories change people's values. Again, that would be at least 20 minutes to describe why and how stories have that effect. So the Bhagavatam is full of stories. It's stories and stories and stories and stories within stories. Therefore, it's very captivating. 
And, of course, there's personalities in those stories. And when one reads the Bhagavatam, because the Bhagavatam is not an ordinary book, one's actually associating with those personalities. Frankly, even in ordinary stories, even ordinary stories about fictional characters, one is associating with those personalities. Oh, maybe I should tell it. I'll try to tell it very briefly. I just can't resist. I'm sorry. So I'm sure you're aware that athletes sometimes before, they're, when, before they perform when they're practicing, they sometimes practice their sport mentally. Are you aware of that? So they may just sit down and they're not moving and they're just mentally hitting the ball. You're aware of this? This is one way that athletes practice. And research has shown that when you mentally go through an action, that your brain and your muscles are activated two-thirds of the extent as when you're doing it physically. I mean, you can try this yourself if you're learning a new skill. If you practice it mentally, when you go to do it physically, it'll be easier. It'll be as if you also practiced it physically. So a similar thing happens with stories. When we hear, read, or see stories, what happens is we almost become the characters in the story, and we live through those characters and experience what they're experiencing, almost the same as if we were literally experiencing it. I'm sure if you've read a book or watched a film, you've noticed that you get emotions of the characters. You get even a physiological reaction. If somebody's watching a scary movie, they'll perspire and so forth. Yes? Why? Because what's happening, and they can, they can do this with brain scans. If the character in the story picks up a piece of cloth in your brain, you're picking up a piece of cloth. So whatever stories we hear, we're practicing that behavior. This is one of the reasons, not the only reason, but it's one reason why stories are very powerful at changing people's behavior and changing people's values and why we're enjoined not to meditate on stories of materialistic persons. So this is true even on a material level. But Bhagavatam is also acting on a spiritual level. So even on a material level, when we're reading the stories of these personalities, we're reading about Ambarish, and we're reading about Kardama, and we're, we're reading about Vidura. We're practicing following in the footsteps of those people on a subtle level. And because the Bhagavatam is spiritual, those personalities are actually present in the stories. So we are getting their association on every level. And we all know that we tend to become like our association. I was speaking a while ago to one devotee who's lapsed in her practices. And we were talking about how she could try to do things that were more spiritual. And I asked her, what do you like in Krishna consciousness? So she was telling me. And then she said, but maybe I should also tell you what I like that's not Krishna conscious. I said, okay. So she was telling me that. And then she said, now this isn't exactly something that I like, but I want to be normal. I said, well, what do you mean exactly? She said, well, when I'm with people at my work, I don't want them to think that I'm strange. 
So this is again our natural tendency that we want to be like the people with whom we associate. We're social beings. And when we're reading the stories of the Bhagavatam, we are literally associating with those personalities. And therefore, our natural inclination, it's a spiritual inclination because the spiritual world is full of living entities, our natural spiritual inclination to be part of a group and be accepted by that group will then operate and will think, well, I'd like to be accepted by Devahuti. I'd like to be accepted by Vidura. I'd like to act in such a way that they look at me and say, you're normal. I want to be normal to them. Now, we not only have the Bhagavatam itself, the philosophy in the Bhagavatam, the stories of the Bhagavatam, the personalities of the Bhagavatam, but what else do we have? We don't just have the verses. We also have the purports. And Prabhupada said these purports are his ecstasies. So, you know, Rupa Goswami says that even a materialistic person in association with a great devotee can experience shadow or reflective ecstasy. That means just by reading the purports, we can get a shadow or a reflection of Srila Prabhupada's ecstasies. And Srila Prabhupada says in the Nectar Devotion, that one can go from that shadow or reflective ecstasy immediately to real ecstasy. So we're in touch not only with Srila Prabhupada's vision and Prabhupada's preaching, but Prabhupada's mood. And of course, in the purports, we're getting... Srila Prabhupada's vision of how to understand and apply the verses of the Bhagavatam to our present time. Prabhupada says it's required not only to keep the principles, but to apply them to time, place, and circumstance. And Prabhupada's doing that for us in the purports. So we can pick up on Srila Prabhupada's mood, Srila Prabhupada's ecstasy, and then we can also learn practically, okay, what do I do with this verse? What do I, what do, I do with what the Bhagavatam is saying here? You know, here's Kardama building a flying city. I can't do that. Anybody here can build flying cities? You're just not revealing your mystic power yet to anybody. So, you know, what do I do with that? And I've never seen wars where people are riding on red-faced monkeys and Timangila fish and... Right? Or Kasyapa's wives who give birth to snakes and birds and lions. And so I've helped deliver a lot of babies, but none of them were lions. <laughs> I never was with a devotee lady and whoop, what's that? So how do you apply this to, to our life? What do you do with it? And Srila Prabhupada's taking in the purport from these stories and these personalities to right now to Kali Yuga, to right now, even to the international society of, of, for Krishna consciousness. And of course, Srila Prabhupada's purports, what do they have within them? They have the commentaries of the previous acharyas. 
So when we're reading Srila Prabhupada's purports, we're not only associating with Srila Prabhupada, we're associating with Bhakti Siddhanta Sarasvati and Bhakti Vinod Thakur and Jiva Goswami and Sridhar Swami and Sanatana Goswami and their moods and their ecstasies and their revelations about how to apply the philosophy in one's own life. So it's not just some philosophy up there. Oh, what a nice philosophy. <laughs> but it comes right to our lives. So I'm sure there's a lot more in the Bhagavatam, but those were the main things that came to mind. Philosophy stories, personalities, Prabhupada's ecstasies, realization, application in the purports, and the previous Acharya's ecstasies, revelations, and applications in the purports. All right. Sounds like a nice party to go to, huh? So you get there, there you are in the Bhagavatam. What's going to happen to you? Might be a good thing to know, huh? What's going to happen? I don't know if we should, if we should reveal this, though, because everybody might run away. Some, sometimes I'm, I'm a little hesitant, especially when I'm giving a class to people very new to Krishna consciousness to tell them what's actually going to happen when they take up Krishna consciousness. Nobody told me what was really going to happen. So should I tell you? Yes. I, I just discovered, I mean, just, 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 because I prepared this a while ago, but just when I sat down here, I discovered something in my notes that I went, oh my God. Somehow or other, I had put the power of the Bhagavatam, I'd gotten four things, and I'd put them in an order that ends up being the order of the progression of bhakti. And I didn't intend to do that. I didn't even know I did that. So we'll just go with it. I love it when things like that happen. So the first thing that we're going to look at is that Bhagavatam cleanses the heart. So if we look at the word for word, Srinvatam. And Prabhupada translates this as those who have developed the urge to hear the message of, the desire, not just your hearing. Recently I was in a temple, and in my first seminar, I asked people, so why have you come? What do you hope to get out of this seminar? And one of the members of the audience says, I'm here because they tell me I have to go if I want to get fed. <laughs> okay, at least you're honest. You know, so one should have some urge to hear the Bhagavatam. <laughs> one should have some excitement and not just this is something i got to do every day. And, and then Ridyantasta. Rid means the heart. Anta within. Sta, the place within the heart. And then Abhadrani. Bhadra means auspicious. Abhadrani, which is not auspicious. Prabhupada says the desire to enjoy matter. Then Surit. Surit, rid means heart, su means very dear, very auspicious, very good, very beautiful. So one who's very dear to the heart. We're lucky if we have a few friends like that in this world. I mean, we all have friends, people we say Haribo to and think, what was their name? And, and other people that we see sometimes and work with. But we have a few surits, right? Maybe you have only one, maybe you have two or three. People who really are dear to your heart. They really care. 
You know, when you leave your body, they won't just think, oh, great, feast. (laughs) They're concerned about what you do. If you tell them what you did today, they, they want to listen at least for five or ten minutes. You know. And they see your bad qualities and they don't think you're a demon and they see your good qualities and they don't think you're a saint. They just see you for who you are and they deal with you as who you are and they like you for who you are. So that's surit. And then take that person, if you can think about that person in your life, I'm sure hopefully all of you have at least one, I hope, and multiply that by a few billion times. So that's Krishna who thoroughly knows us. None of our surits in this life thoroughly know us, 100%. But Krishna completely thoroughly knows us, and he loves us, he hangs around with us, even if we become a cockroach. You know that story by Franz Kafka, Metamorphosis, where the family comes to wake up their family member and he's become a big cockroach. (laughs) So even our surit jivas, if we became a big cockroach, they probably wouldn't like us anymore. But Krishna, right? He's Yantra Rudrani mind. And whatever Yantra we're in, Krishna is still our best friend. So this Surit, this best friend, does this cleansing, Vidyunoti Satam, of those who are truthful. Prabhupada translates it, Sri Krishna, the personality of Godhead, who's the super soul in everyone's heart, and the benefactor of the truthful devotee, cleanses desire for material enjoyment from the heart of the devotee who has developed the urge to hear his messages, which are in themselves virtuous when properly heard and chanted. So how does this cleansing take place? This cleansing takes place, that as you hear about Krishna, he gets very pleased, he gets very excited, He manifests himself in the heart. Krishna is full of light and the heart gets lit up. And then if one is truthful and one wants to know the truth, then one will see one's material desires. One will see, Prabhupada said, the naked form of material desires. We'll discuss this a little bit more tomorrow, how to hear Tomorrow we're going to talk about how to hear and how to preach. So we'll just kind of leave it at that. How? But the material desires become cleansed. Now, again, this may sound very nice, but the process of the cleansing is not very nice for a materially attached soul. Again, nobody told me this when I joined the Hare Krishna movement. So I'm... I'm sure most of you here already know this, but for those who don't, I'm going to give you fair warning, truth in advertising. So if you're attached to something, being cleansed of it will be experienced initially as painful. If you're attached to something, being cleansed of it will be experienced initially as painful. Because it means Bhagavatam will show us our attachments. In their naked form. I always give the example of the person who has uh, an exotic animal as a pet. Someone has a tiger as a pet or a python as a pet. And they think, this is a pet. It loves me. I love it. It is the source of affection for me. 
and then one day their pet eats them. And if you go to such persons and say, my dear sir, you are living with a python. He says, oh yeah, I know. But he doesn't know. So the Bhagavatam takes our material attachments and says, this is what they really are. And when you're attached to something that's horrible and disgusting and dangerous and selfish and greedy and exploitive and cruel and you think it's very nice, seeing it for what it is is painful. Now, the pain is due to our pride. But there's definitely some pain involved. Therefore, there's some humility. Therefore, the devotees will say, oh, I'm so fallen. So the Bhagavatam will do that. The Bhagavatam will say, hey, you're living like a hog, dog, camel, or ass. That, that's, that's heavy. Now, all you're doing is eating, sleeping, mating, and defending. You're not better than an animal. That, those are very harsh, heavy statements. Your life is useless. Shrama Evihi Kevalam. You can be a, a pious person doing so many wonderful things in the world, but if you haven't a trained t- transcendence, it's all useless. Again, that's heavy. And it's hard. Because we're thinking, oh, I, I'm great and I'm doing wonderful things and my life is full of meaning. And Bhagavatam says, no, it's not. It's empty. It just looks real. You say, oh, my life is full of pleasure. And Bhagavatam says, no, it's not. It's a forest of material enjoyment full of hooting owls, which are your enemies that behind your back are saying, we do You know, and high mountains that you're climbing and caves you're falling into and tigers that are going to eat you and elephants that are going to stample you and witches that are going to suck your blood and thieves and, and all these parts of your life that you think, oh, they're wonderful. These are my family members. These are my friends. These are my meaningful activities in the world. I am an important person. I am a good person. I'm kind, I'm compassionate, I'm selfless. Bhagavatam says, no, you're not. You're greedy, lusty, envious, selfish, exploitive, contaminated dog who's suffering one after another with people who look like your friends and look like your family members, but actually they're just witches and jackals and thieves. And people run away frankly. So a lot of people can't get past the showers. Again, we'll discuss discuss this a little bit more tomorrow, but they don't realize that when you take a shower, you feel really good afterwards. That it may be a little painful to see how dirty you are, but then you figure out you need a shower. And then when you take a shower, you feel so good. Uh, as soon as they, as soon as they just see, ah, look at me! Oh my God! And then they turn around and run away. So we see many people; they just get to this cleansing process, and they're not willing to be satam. They're not willing to be truthful, and so they turn around and run away. Or some of them stay and just become mechanical. <laughs> 
So some people stay and just go on with mechanical service, which of course you can't keep up for too long, but keep it up probably for a few lifetimes. And some people run away. So then after one is cleansed, then what is the next stage? This is from the purport of 285. Prabhupada says, by sincere efforts to hear Srimad Bhagavatam, one realizes his constitutional relationship with the Lord in the transcendental humor of servitude, friendship, paternal affection, or conjugal love. And by such self-realization, one becomes situated at once in the transcendental loving service of the Lord. So what happens when you get clean? You see, oh, there was something nice under all that dirt. It wasn't just dirt. The dirt wasn't the real me. Chaita Darpanam Arjunam. The Bhagavatam's also revealing what we are. The Bhagavatam's revealing that when a Jamyo realizes how dirty and contaminated he is, then he comes to who he is. He sees his, gets his spiritual form and he gets his relationship with the Lord. One starts to see, I, I'm a part of God, and not just I'm a part of God in a, in a vague way, but one starts to experience, oh, I, I have feelings for the Lord as my friend or as my, my son or as my lover. And the real spiritual feelings start to awaken. Then one finds that there are real friends and there are real family and there are real meaningful activities and there is a form that's actually kind and compassionate and truthful and wonderful and I really am that. And then one starts to engage in bhakti on a different platform, on a platform of increasing one's attachment on a platform of developing one's relationship, on a platform of meditating on the Lord in the context of that relationship. And the Bhagavatam gives you the keys to do that. Just like Prabhupada writes in uh, the third chapter of the 10th Canto, that one who's gotten feelings for the Lord as their child meditates on Mother Yasoda, how she's churning butter and she's perspiring and the flowers are falling from her hair. So the Bhagavatam gives us the means for meditation and entrance into who we really are. And when one meditates on that, when one starts meditating on Krishna in one's awakened feelings, then the next thing, one will come to see Krishna directly. This is from the purport of 1344. One can certainly see directly the presence of Lord Sri Krishna in the pages of the Bhagavatam. So after one has gone through the shower and one's real feelings have awakened, then when one starts reading the Bhagavatam, oh, there's Krishna. They were saying even a materialistic person, when they read a materialistic story, they experience that they're with the characters in that story. But here Krishna's actually there. And Prabhupada says one will see Krishna directly. Finally, one will see Krishna face to face. Prabhupada says, just like we're seeing each other. And what will be the result of that? So from the purport to 10, 12, 7, 11. Prabhupada says, if one adheres to these two books, Bhagavad Gita and Srimad Bhagavatam, when assured to obtain the association of Krishna in the next life, Tvaktudeya Hampunarjanma Naitimam Metisorjuna. 
So this is what the Bhagavatam can give us. It gives us freedom from the chains. It takes off the chains. It takes off the illusion. It clears the eyes. It clears off the dust. It shows us the reality. <coughs> it shows us the the actual nature of illusion. So we let it go. And that doesn't bring us to nothingness. It brings us to reality. It awakens our real self. Then we start doing activities on the basis of the real self, which allow us to see Krishna in the Bhagavatam. And by seeing Krishna in the Bhagavatam, then yam yam bapi sarambhavam tvajachantekalevram tam tam bhavita. Just like, and Prabhupada explains this very nicely in the 8th chapter of Majulila, that just like in conditioned life, we get a particular body according to our meditation and activities. So spiritually, according to our meditation and activities, we develop our spiritual body and get to be with Krishna eternally. So that is what the Bhagavatam gives us. Cleansing, revelation of our real swarup, cleansing the the illusion and the unreal, revealing the real me, revealing God and bringing a me into his association. So how do we get that from the Bhagavatam? One may say, well, I've been reading the Bhagavatam for a long time and I haven't seen all that. So that we will do, Krishna willing, tomorrow how to read the Bhagavatam so as to access these jewels and how to teach the Bhagavatam so as to access these jewels. So questions, comments, additions, subtractions. It's May 21st, 2013, Bhaktivedanta Manor, London, England, and we're doing part two of a seminar on the Bhagavatam. Yesterday we did why study the Bhagavatam and today we're going to do how to study and how to teach so before we do the verse for today, can somebody tell me something about yesterday? What's in the Bhagavatam? Stories, Stories and philosophy. philosophy and Stories and philosophies. Yes, and Prabhupada's purports, which are full of his ecstasies. And also in Prabhupada's purports, we find the the previous acharyas. And then there's all the personalities in the stories. All the great personalities in the stories. What are some of the personalities in the stories? Dhruva and Prahlad, Kardama, Pariket. Okay. And what do you get from studying the Bhagavatam? First, you get. Clean. Vidyantasta Bhadrani Vidyunoti Saritsita. The first one gets cleansed of all the upadis, all the designations, all the illusion. And then after getting cleaned, you realize your swarup, you realize your relationship with Krishna. And then as one meditates on Krishna and their relationship, they see Krishna directly, and at the end, one goes back to home, back to Godhead. Cleaning the dirty things, realizing one's swarup, seeing Krishna face to face, going back to Godhead. Sound good? Okay. 
That's another verse of the Bhagavatam 325. When we'll go step by step. So that's what happens. Now, how do we get that? This verse uh, is cited by Jiva Goswami as the concluding verse of the Bhagavatam. Is that okay with you? Any reactions to that? It's a bit early to be the concluding verse. Uh, after this, Sugadeva Goswami says, do you have any more questions? But uh, This concludes the basic Bhagavatam answering Parikit's question what to do at the time of death. So this is 2.2.37. Translation and purport by Srila Prabhupada. Those who drink through oral reception, fully filled with the nectarian message of Lord Krishna, the beloved of the devotees, purify the polluted aim of life known as material enjoyment and thus go back to Godhead, the lotus feet of him, the personality of Godhead. So, how are you supposed to study Bhagavatam? Through the ears? How? Through the ears? Drinking. To what extent? Fully. Hmm. Samritam. Fully filled. And here we have this satam again, this idea of, of the devotees as being truthful. Purport. The sufferings of human society are due to a polluted aim of life, namely lording it over the material resources. The more human society engages in the exploitation of undeveloped material resources for sense gratification, the more it will be entrapped by the illusory material energy of the Lord, and thus the distress of the world will be intensified instead of diminished. The human necessities of life are fully supplied by the Lord in the shape of food grains, milk, fruit, wood, stone, sugar, silk, jewels, cotton, salt, water, vegetables, etc. That would make an interesting class. Insufficient quantity to feed and care for the human race of the world as well as the living beings on each and every planet within the universe. The supply source is complete and only a little energy by the human being is required to get his necessities into the proper channel. There is no need of machines and tools or huge steel plants for artificially creating comforts of life. Life is never made comfortable by artificial needs, but by plain living and high thinking. The highest professional thinking for human society is suggested here by Shukadeva Goswami, namely sufficiently hearing Srimad Bhagavatam. For men in this age of Kali, when they have lost the perfect vision of life, the Srimad Bhagavatam is a torchlight by which to see the real path. Prabhupada is referring to which verse when he says that? Yes, the verse we did yesterday. Srila Jiva Goswami Prabhupada has commented on the Katamritam mentioned in this verse and has indicated Srimad Bhagavatam to be the nectarian message of the personality of Godhead. By sufficient hearing of Srimad Bhagavatam, the polluted aim of life, namely lording it over matter, will subside and people in general in all parts of the world will be able to live a peaceful life of knowledge and bliss. For a pure devotee of the Lord, any topics in relation with his name, fame, quality, entourage, etc. are all pleasing. And because such topics have been approved, now this is another interesting list in this purport. So we had the interesting list of necessities, and now we're going to have this very interesting list. And because such topics have been approved by great devotees like, now listen to this list, 
Narada, Hanuman, Nanda Maharaj, and other inhabitants of Vrindavan. I'm not going to discuss that today, but just noting. That's an interesting list. Uh, Certainly such messages are transcendental and pleasing to the heart and soul. Prabhupada also has an interesting list in the introduction to Krishna book. A list of devotees. So here he who are the devotees mentioned here? Narada, Nandamarj, and Hanuman. And all the other residents of Vrindavan, yeah. Narada, Hanuman, Nandamarj, and all the other inhabitants of Vrindavan. They've approved the Bhagavatam. The approval committee. And by the constant hearing of the messages of the Bhagavad Gita and later Srimad Bhagavatam, one is assured herein by Srila Sukadeva Goswami that he will reach the personality of Godhead and render him transcendental loving service in the spiritual planet of the name Goloka Vrindavana, which resembles a huge lotus flower. Thus, by the process of bhakti yoga directly accepted as suggested in this verse, by sufficient hearing of the transcendental message of the Lord, the material contamination is directly eliminated without one's attempting to contemplate the impersonal virat conception of the Lord. And by practicing bhakti yoga, oh my, this is a heavy one. Maybe I shouldn't read the end of this purport. If you get easily discouraged, then think about something else. And by practicing bhakti yoga, if the performer is not purified by the material contamination, he must be a pseudo-devotee. For such an imposter, there is no remedy for being freed from material entanglement. Now, we won't talk about that. Okay. No, we will, but anyway. That's a pretty heavy statement, isn't it? Whenever I read that, I go, oh, my God. What will I do? So how to study the Bhagavatam to get this effect of being cleansed of all material contamination, realizing one's actual identity, seeing Krishna, and going back to Godhead. So one must fully drink the Bhagavatam. This is also described in 1344 as hearing with rapt attention. Uh, so there it is saying... Prabhupada says, O learned Brahmanas, when Sukadeva Goswami recited Bhagavatam there, I heard him with rapt attention, and thus by his mercy I learned the Bhagavatam from that great and powerful sage. So what does rapt mean? R-A-P-T, not W-R-A-P-P-E-D. But R-A... Full focused. Hmm. Any other uh, ideas of what the meaning of the English word rapt is? That's W-R-A-P-P-E-D. Concentration, yes. Very intense, exclusive, without diversion. There's an English word that's connected to the word rapt. Rapture. Oh, very good. Deeply engrossed or absorbed. Does it also mention how it's related to the word rapture? Not in that little dictionary. Okay. Rapture means to be carried away, to be raptured, kind of like to be kidnapped. 
so Srila Prabhupada didn't like having people do other things during Bhagavatam class. And I haven't talked about this for years and years and years and years and years, but it used to be one of my um, causes. So when I trained Gurukul children in attending the morning program, I never let them do anything in the class except take notes, just listen and take notes. So whenever Prabhupada would see people doing other things in the class, he would stop them and he would say, don't divert your attention. Uh, don't divert your attention. So it should be rapt attention, not partial attention. In our modern society, everybody likes to give partial attention to everything. Now, while you're talking to your friend, you're answering your email, and you're polishing your nails, and all at the same time, yes? This is considered the perfection of modern society, isn't it? Right? How to appear to be attentive without actually being attentive. But to hear Bhagavatam, one should be fully attentive. Now, in, under what circumstances are we fully attentive to something? When we like it. When we need it. And when you know you need it. If you're lost somewhere and you ask somebody for directions, you're fully attentive if you trust the person. Right? Maybe even take notes and you repeat it over and over again. You do something to remember. So a lot of being fully attentive is to understand the importance. That's a lot of being fully attentive is to understand the importance. If we don't understand the importance of something, we're not going to be fully attentive to it. We'll be distracted. And of course, another reason to be fully attentive is to realize that the Bhagavatam is not a book. It's not just paper and ink. It's a person. It's actually Krishna himself. And all of the personalities in the Bhagavatam are there. Even in an ordinary book, as we talked about yesterday, you are associating with the personalities of that book, even if they're fictional personalities, by being absorbed in the story. That's just a medical scientific fact. It's as if you're right with, whenever you're reading a story or hearing or watching a story, it's as if you're become in the association of those characters. And how much more so is that true when we're dealing with something transcendent? So, of course, Prabhupada talks about this with chanting also. You're directly in the presence of Krishna. How attentive will you be? You know, so if, if Prabhupada were to come to you, and say, Krishna's going to come to your room in the next 10 minutes. How attentive would you be? How focused would you be? Hmm? You'd be completely focused. So the problem is that we, we forget this. Of course, sometimes we have this experience of complete focus, whether it's on Bhagavatam, whether it's on our japa, whether it's on kirtan, whether it's on serving the deity or any service. And you find when you have this complete focus, what happens? You, you lose your awareness of anything else, isn't it? I've experienced this many times on book distribution, where you just you forget how long you've been standing on your feet. You, you forget about it. You forget everything. You're just absorbed. Later you realize, oh, my feet hurt. Oh, I've been carrying a heavy bag. Yes, you've had this experience? We just had this experience in Florence, Italy. We were taken to the art studio of one devotee, Gananjaya, Gananjana. And he has these paintings that are... Oh, if you see the entrance to Prabhupada's Vyasasan, the wooden frame there, 
So if you imagine a painting that could fill that whole frame, so most of his paintings are that big. Some are bigger than that. Some are taller than that. His paintings are two to three meters high, maybe four or five meters long, most of them. The smallest ones were maybe like a meter by a meter. And they're great detail and, and depth. Somehow he's really mastered three-dimensional painting. What's really amazing is each of his paintings takes him two weeks to do. Can you imagine what kind of rapt attention he must have when he's painting? And because, and we'll get to this, it's hard to separate this study and teaching, but because he's really wrapped when he's painting, it's so easy when you're there to become wrapped in the paintings. And you really feel that you're being raptured into the painting. And there you are with Avimanyu being surrounded by the Maharatis. And there you are with, I mean, he's got one of, of little 12-year-old Kunti, shading her eyes from the sun, God. And you see the whole palace, and you, you forget everything. You forget that you're in Florence, you forget you're in a studio, you forget that you've been standing there for two hours and you haven't had anything to drink, and you're, you, just, you forget all that. You just, so we all have these sort of experiences, and this is the kind of experience we should have when we're hearing Bhagavatam, where we enter basically into real samadhi. Now, there's two kinds of samadhi. One kind of samadhi, Prabhupada says in the third canto, is lifeless yoga. That's the mechanical samadhi of the dhyan yogis, where there's a way to go mechanically into samadhi just by putting your body in different postures, breathing in a certain way. I mean, generally, they also require a pure life, but practically speaking, Honestly, Prabhupada talks about this also in the teachings of Lord Kapila. Even a materialistic person, even a demon, can go into samadhi like that. What big demon went into samadhi mechanically? Hiranyakashipu, who we're going to be reading about his disappearance day in a couple of days. <laughs> so Hiranyakashipu went into mechanical samadhi. And in samadhi, before samadhi, there's pratyatara. You lose consciousness of your surroundings. So anyone can learn how to do this, actually. Prabhupada gives example in teachings of Lord Kapila of Stalin, who put his mind in such a state that he had surgical operation without anesthesia. So anyone can learn practically half an hour. You could teach anybody how to do this. It's not terribly difficult. But Prabhupada calls this lifeless yoga. And that kind of samadhi if, if something else comes along, Vishramita Muni had this problem. He was in that kind of samadhi, and he just heard some sound that he thought, oh, is that a woman's jewelry? And he was completely disturbed, just the sound like that. Or Subara Muni, who got disturbed by fish mating when he was in. It doesn't sound particularly disturbing, but anyway, he became disturbed. Even though he was in this mechanical Samadhi, so just some little thing, some little thing, some jewelry clanking sound, some fish mating, and your mechanical samadhi is finished. So the samadhi that we're supposed to enter into is the kind of natural samadhi that we all enter to whenever we're very attached to something. 
Prabhupada talking on Bhagavad Gita 7.1, Maya Shaktamana Partha in Sanan, India, to a general crowd of the general populace, he was not talking just to devotees, said everybody already knows how to be attached. Everybody here know how to be attached? Anybody here need a lesson in how to be attached? No? No? Okay. We don't have any, if we had a, a class, how to become attached, would anybody have to go? No. So just you change the object of your attachment. And we all know how to be so attached that we forget about everything else, correct? Have we all had this experience? And we can get attached to anything. Have you also experienced this? You can get attached to anything. You can get attached to your phone. So you forget everything else. To your shoes. To a dog. Anything. So that the whole rest of the world goes away and you're completely focused you don't even know where you are or what somebody's saying to you yes so we all know how to do this this is not some sort of new art and this is a natural samadhi this is a samadhi of attachment a shakti maya shaktam anaparta so one should learn to become attached to the bhagavatam like that and since it's katamritam since it's amrita uh, surely that is possible. So that's with rapt attention. Now, how does one get this rapt attention? This is also from 1344. Prophet says, no one can give rapt attention who is not pure in mind. No one can be pure in mind who is not pure in action. No one can be pure in action who is not pure in eating, sleeping, fearing, and mating. So we can have rapt attention on a dog or we can have rapt attention on a phone. But if you're going to have rapt attention on God or on the Bhagavatam, why would one need to have purity of mind? Because, yeah, otherwise the material attachments will intervene. What's Bhagavatam doing to you again? Remember what is Bhagavatam doing? It's, it's cleansing all of the... That's also in today's verse, in today's verse, punantite vishaya vidushita swayam. It's cleansing all the vishaya. It's cleansing the desire to enjoy. But guess what? If you don't want to cleanse the desire to enjoy, then you can't pay attention to it. Does that make sense to everybody? You just won't. We talked about we, we get wrapped in something we want and something we need. But if you don't want to be cleansed, Rabbi says if you want to keep things as they are, then why should you pay attention to a cleansing process? Is that logical? In fact, you won't pay attention to the cleansing process. You'll do it mechanically. You'll do it with distraction. You'll do it with inattention. Therefore, satam, one has to be truthful. And how does one become pure in mind? Prabhupada says one has to become pure in action. So we have to, we ha you can't say, well, I really want to love God. I really want to be a servant of God, but I'm going to spend all of my time doing materially exploitive activities. Who would believe that? Maybe a jury would believe But would we believe that in our everyday life? If someone says, I really like you. I really want to spend time with you. And every time there's an opportunity, they're busy with something else. Have you ever had a friend like this? <laughs> and after a while, you don't believe them. You know? 
After a while, you don't believe them. Or the man who tells his wife, oh, dear, I love you so much. And then he's working, you know, 80, 90 hours a week and never sees her. And then she finds out he's got a girlfriend on the side and so forth and so on. And she says, how, do you, how is it you love me? Where's the demonstration? Love is, is practical. Huh? What we care about is, pro- what, we, what we actually care about, <laughs> I hope I can get this, this right. There was uh, some research done about business leaders and they were asked to write down their lists of priorities. What were the most important things they had to attend to in their business? So they wrote down this list of priorities. And then the researcher asked them to keep a record of what they worked on during a week. And at the end of the week, they compared the list of what the business leaders did and their list of priorities, and not one of the leaders spent one minute during the week working on anything on their priority list. And when, and when I was doing research on financial management of school districts, so one of the things the financial managers told me over and over again is you know the real priorities by looking at the budget. Whatever the leaders of the school system say, we really care about the arts, and then you look at their budget and see if they spend any money on it. Hey, if you want to know really if somebody says... I really want to love Krishna. And then you look at, well, what do they do? You can see what we, you know, where do we put our energy? Where do we put our money? Where do we put our energy? Like Jesus said, wherever your treasure is, there your heart is. Prabhupada quoted that to Ambarish when he asked him to buy the Detroit temple. He said, wherever your, your treasure is, there your heart is. Or Prabhupada talks about the wealthy man who retires and goes to Vrindavan with his beads and gives all of his money to his family. And Krishna says, where's your money? So to be pure in mind, one has to be pure in action. One has to demonstrate by one's actions what is actually important. And then Prabhupada says, no one can be pure in action who is not pure in eating, sleeping, fearing, and mating. So to be pure in our general action... We have to be, it's pretty easy to see how to be pure in eating, that we can figure out. Pretty easy to see how to be pure in mating. How do you be pure in sleeping? Oh, that's nice. Sleep knowing that tomorrow you wake up to serve Krishna. Any other thoughts about how to be pure in sleeping? Read before you sleep. Okay. Krishna book, all right. Have nice dreams. Okay. Any other thoughts about how to be pure in sleeping? Don't oversleep. Okay. Any other thoughts? Do not smoke. <laughs> I don't think so. Regular sleep, sleep at regulated times. Yes? Sleeping at the right time. Waking up at the right time. What about this pure in fearing? We could have a whole class on this one. Or maybe a week on this one. Yeah. To be afraid of the material energy. Oh, that was what purified Devaki. By being, by being afraid of the material energy in the form of Kamsa, she was able to conquer the six enemies. Yes. Fear offenses to devotees. Oh, I like this. Yes. Protecting the weak. Oh, that's cool. Somebody else had to be pure and fearing.
fear of falling down? What should we not be afraid of? No, we should be afraid of Maya. What should we not be afraid of? Death. Death? Okay. What else? Not be afraid of Krishna. Oh, thank you, Prabhu. Uh, to, to never have a fear that, oh, Krishna won't protect me. To have a f- confidence that Krishna will always protect me and maintain me. So pure and fearing would also mean I don't have to protect myself. I don't have to defend myself. you have any idea how much energy we spend in defending ourselves and attacking others? Probably something like that. Thank you for the scientific number. You can try a little experiment. Try an experiment. This is a codice, so it'd be a good day to do it. You could say, for the rest of the, this whole day, I will not say anything to defend myself to anybody. And I will not say anything to criticize others. I will not say anything to defend myself, and I will not say anything to criticize others, unless, somebody's, unless there's some danger to somebody else. So sometimes you may have to defend yourself in order to save somebody else. And sometimes you may have to attack someone to save somebody else. But And try it. You might find some interesting things happening. Okay, then for those of us who read this and go, I was like all prepared to have rapt attention, and but I don't have a pure mind, and I don't have pure action, and I'm not pure in eating, sleeping, fearing, and mating, so just forget the whole thing. Then Prabhupada says, but somehow or other, don't you love it when Prabhupada says that? But somehow or other, if, if, one, if someone hears with rapt attention from the right person at the very beginning, one can assuredly see Lord Sri Krishna in person in the pages of the Bhagavatam. So even if your life is a mess, if somehow or other you hear from the right person, a.k.a. Srila Prabhupada, <laughs> Sukadeva Goswami, and somehow even for a moment, you have rapt attention. Bhagavatam says one moment of pure consciousness. So that's our next thing. So we have rapt attention, purity in mind and body, and the next one is to hear from realized persons, as we just read. Then one can directly see the presence of Lord Sri Krishna in the pages of Bhagavatam if one has heard it from a self-realized great soul like Sukadeva Goswami. So just during this morning, and Prabhupada says, if you hear from people who are making a profession that neither the speaker nor the listeners gets benefited. He said, Krishna will not do business with you. He's not interested in doing business. He's a supreme controller. He doesn't need to do business. You know, I need things, so I have to do business with people. But Krishna doesn't need anything. Om Purnamada Purnamidam. He's complete. He has no requirement of doing business. He has nothing, nothing to exchange like that. Actually, it's disgusting when people pretend to be friends and then are doing business, isn't it? It's actually, it's just revolting. When someone makes it, oh, I like you, I'm your friend, and actually they're coming to get something from you. Especially wealthy or famous people or very beautiful people, anyone who's very opulent is subject to this sort of thing, particularly. That somebody appears as a friend and actually they're just coming to get something. So if one hears Bhagavatam from such a person, there's no effect for anyone. So we should be careful with this principle 
and this probably doesn't particularly apply to Bhagavatam at this point in our history, but this applies to what books we read, what translations we read. So this was something I see becoming an increasing problem in our Hare Krishna movement. In the early days of ISKCON, it was really simple. We only read Prabhupada's books. We didn't read anything else. And now, fortunately, we have so many other books of the Acharyas that are being translated, and so many of Prabhupada's followers are also writing books which Shiva Prabhupada wanted them to do. But now our need for care is a little bit more subtle. I mean, before it was simple. You didn't really have that much discrimination. Is it Prabhupada's book or not? Okay, simple. But now you have to have a little discrimination. What book is it? Where's the book from? Who translated it? Who commented on it? Is it proper for me at this stage in my devotion to read this book and so forth and so on? And one should should be careful. And I see that there's often a lack of care. You know, one of the reasons that uh, we've been very interested in producing children's books is that we saw so many times where parents and teachers would get their kids these comics. You know, and I, I remember looking one of these comics right in the front. It was talking about how Indra was the Supreme Lord. You know, the whole mood is, is off. And so you may say, oh, it's Krishna's Leela and so forth, but it's not going to give you that effect. All right, so we have with rapt attention, with purity in body and mind from the right person, and then in the association of devotees, Satam prasanga mamavirya sambhada. Again, the word satam, prasanga, not just sangha, but prasanga. Not just like hanging out, although hanging out with devotees is also nice, but deep association. And Prabhupada says in 2.2.30 that one should hear and read Bhagavad Gita and Bhagavatam in the association of devotees. So, Personal study is nice. Certainly we're not saying you should never personally study the Bhagavatam. It's not that every time you open the book you have to invite some other devotee into your room. <laughs> but we should also study in the association of devotees. And it's much to tell Magata Prasparam, It's so satisfying, isn't it, when there's that prasparam. Just like even I've asked you questions and you've come up with answers that I wouldn't have thought of. Hmm? It's enlivening. We all have so much to offer each other. And when we're in the association of devotees, we get the right understanding. So there's a nice quote here from 4911. Prabhupada says, If one gets an unripe mango, it is still a mango. And when it is ripe, it remains the same mango. But it has become more tasteful and relishable. Similarly, there is devotional service performed according to the direction of the spiritual master, and the injunctions and regulated principles of Shastra, and there is devotional service in the spiritual world, rendered directly in association with the Supreme Personality of Godhead. But they are both the same. There is no change. The difference is that one stage is unripe, and the other is ripe and more relishable. So would everybody like to get their devotional service ripe? All right. It is possible to mature in devotional service only in the association of devotees. This is something that Srila Prabhupada emphasizes over and over again, that someone who thinks that they can mature without the association of devotees, Prabhupada says, is in a great hallucination because it's not possible. Uh, without devotees, it's very easy to become deviated. 
Of course, sometimes, anyway, maybe we won't go there, not today. All right, so another thing is that understanding in context. So this is so important. It's so easy to pull out one sentence, one word, one something from the Shastra. The Christians call it devil-citing Shastra, and Prabhupada would also say that. The devil can quote the scripture for their own purposes. I mean, seriously, I met one gentleman who said, my favorite verse in Bhagavad Gita is where Krishna says, now you can do whatever you like. But I mean, you could take that from the Bhagavad Gita and say, there's Krishna's directions. Do whatever you like. Or Krishna's instructions to Nandamaraj in the Bhagavatam, where he says, why are you worrying about God? God has to give you the results of your karma. Just be a good person. What about even where Krishna says to Arjuna, for those who've been honored, dishonor is worse than death. Yeah, we get that honor. A little later, he says, you should be detached from honor and dishonor. But you just take the one thing. So this has also become a very common problem in our Hare Krishna movements. I have my point I want to make, and I selectively pull out the quotes that foster my point, and I throw those quotes at you, and you have your point you want to make, and you selectively pull out the quotes that support your point, and you throw them back at me, and etc., etc. So at best, this is Kanista Adhikari, where Prabhupada describes that the Kanista is always arguing that their form of devotion is better than anybody else's. And at worst, it's half a hen and you get nothing. You know the story of half a hen where the guy wanted the eggs and didn't want to feed the hen, so he just cuts it in half and thinks he's going to get the eggs. So one should understand the Shastra in context. In order to do that, my dear friends, one has to know the whole Shastra. How are you going to understand the Shastra in context if you don't know the context? So if you haven't thoroughly read Srila Prabhupada's books, if you haven't thoroughly read the Bhagavad Gita, you know, if you're still on 111, <laughs> then how are you going to understand things in context? So you want to know in the context of the whole scriptures, all right, is this statement in the Shastra, is this a statement that's true for everybody all the time in all time, places, and circumstance, or is this a statement that has to be applied according to time, place, and circumstance? Like what's a statement that is true in all time, places, and circumstances. Sarva Dharma and Parichaja. Do you know that Mahaprabhu told Ramananda Roy that that was external? Sorry. It was a good try. Dehi no sminyata dehe. Oh, it's only true in the material world. Another good try. Krishna's true Bhagavan Swayam. Okay, that's a good one. That's true in all times, in all places, in all circumstances. Another one. Always remember Krishna and never forget him. That's true for everybody in all time, in all place, in all circumstances. Hmm? Jivaraswara Paya Krishna and Nishidas. Very nice. Okay, give me some statement that is applicable to some people in some times and some circumstances. Hmm? Just do your duty, yes, okay. The gopis gave up their duty, didn't they? They did. Yes. 
If you can't do bhakti yoga, do karma. Oh, yeah, very good. Okay. So we have many examples like that. Now, how are you going to know which examples are applicable to certain people in certain circumstances and which they're absolutely true, but they're absolutely true in certain circumstances? Does that make sense to everybody? And which statements are absolutely true in all circumstances for everybody? And there are different statements. And how are you going to know that? You have to know the context. The context means you have to know the whole Shastra. You have to know what is a Siddhanta. And then you have to know the context in which it's spoken. Who's speaking it? To whom? What's happening? Yes? One has to know the story. What's the purpose? What's going on? Otherwise, we'll be misled. Otherwise, we'll take something uh, that's meant to be applied in circumstances and apply it uh, in all circumstances or apply it in the wrong circumstances. And we'll take something that should be applied in all circumstances and think it should only be applied in some circumstances. And then also, of course, we have Nastaprayeshu Abhadreshu Nityam Bhagavata Seveya Bhagavata Uttama Sloke Bhakti Bhavati Naishtaki Nityam Bhagavata. One should be hearing repeatedly, not just once and then you finished. So I've already run out of time, so I'm going to have to do really quickly. Right. Next is systematically. So Prabhupada says in the, preface, in the preface, the only qualification one needs to study this great book is to proceed step by step cautiously and not jump forward haphazardly like an ordinary book. It should be gone through chapter by chapter, one after another. The reading matter is so arranged with its original Sanskrit text, its English transliteration, synonyms, translations, and purports, so that one is sure to become a God-realized soul at the end of finishing the first nine cantos. So I don't know if I've said this here before or not, but I asked Burjan Prabhu in Vrindavan because he and Narayani have taught the Bhagavatam from first canto to twelfth canto, not even just first to ninth, verse by verse, systematically. And I said, so Prabhu, we were having prasadam, I said, so Prabhu, did you become a self-realized soul? And he said, oh yes. He said, I realize that I am a fool. <laughs> One should read Bhagavatam with a view to application in your life, not just as something theoretical. I remember years ago in a Sankirtan newsletter, one sannyasi said, whenever one is, is reading the Shastra or listening to a class, one should always think, how can I apply this to my own life? So after reading that, I became very enthused, and I said, yes, I'm going to do that. So the next morning, I went to Bhagavatam class that was given by the temple commander, and his whole class was about that the way to advance was to surrender to your local and immediate authority. <laughs> so I was really having problems having rapt attention in the class. And at one point, I thought, because at that time, I was in the Grahasta Ashram, and we had our own flat a couple blocks from the temple. And I was thinking, what does this have to do with me? I don't have any immediate authority in the temple. And I thought, okay, well, that, that Maharaj said, you should really try to apply it to your own life. I said, oh, Krishna, please show me how to apply this somehow to my own life. And all of a sudden, I went, oh, my husband is my immediate authority. And, and that transformed my life. It, it had a, a huge transformative effect on my life. And if I just thought, oh, my husband's my temple president, it made things very simple for me. And, you know, anyway, it was a big thing. 
So I found even in a class that was, I'm sorry, I have to say, not a very nice class. And I'm sorry to say that it wasn't a very nice class. I'm not, I'm going to be honest. Sometimes one has to be honest. And it wasn't given with a view to help everybody who was listening. Still, I was able to find something for personal application. Uh, so I found that to be the case. And we're going to get to that with teaching also. And then with the desire to increase one's attachment to Krishna. One should be reading, how can I become more attached to Krishna? 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 Not just reading officially, but reading and studying and hearing, how can I use this? How can I use this today? And how can I use this today to become more attached to Krishna? Then how to teach the Shastra. So, of course, one also has to have a pure life to teach the Shastra. One can't be going to the nightclubs and the casinos and the brothels and then, you know, teaching the Shastra and then going to smoke your cigarette afterwards. That's not going to work. One has to be a transparent via media. One has to be connecting, as Prabhupada said, soul to soul via the super soul. One should be connecting Krishna to the hearers. And one should be in disciplic succession. One shouldn't just say, well, I've gone to the desert and meditated and seen God, and now I'm starting my own religion. One should be teaching the Bhagavatam as it's taught by the predecessors. Uh, Prabhupada's emphasizing this so much. Right? He says, everyone should be a guru. What is the qualification? Just repeat what you have heard. Just don't concoct anything. And just as the hearers should find principles for life application, the preacher should preach for life application. Don't teach the Bhagavatam up in some sort of theoretical cloud where people just say, oh, that's very nice, but what am I supposed to do with it? And please don't make people work to find an application. Uh, give it to them. Uh, that's the job of the teacher. The job of the teacher is to bring the truth of the Shastra to the lives of the people. Make it relevant to them. Prabhupada was so expert at that. Made Bhagavatam relevant in every purport, in every class. Narada Muni was also expert at this. How to take universal truths and make them applicable to the audience's lives right now. That means preaching according to time, place, and circumstance. That means changing your presentation according to the audience. That means giving people ways they can apply things right now. Uh, in in one five sixteen, Prabhupada says the expert devotees also can discover novel ways and means to convert the non devotees in terms of particular time and circumstance. Devotional service is dynamic activity, and the expert devotee can find out competent means to inject it into the dull brains of materialistic person. And in Adi seven thirty eight purport. He says, Desh Kalapatra should be taken in consideration. Therefore, it is a principle that a preacher must strictly follow the rules and regulations laid down in the Shastras, yet at the same time devise a means by which the preaching, by which the preaching work will reclaim, to reclaim the fallen may go on with full force. So both are required to keep the message pure and to present it according to time, place, and circumstance and personal application. One has to do both. If you say, well, I've kept the message pure, it's not enough. You have to keep the message pure and make it real for people. It's like if you cook and you cook with only ghee and you cook with only organic, devotee-grown vegetables, but you just throw the food at people. 
You, know, you want to serve the prasadam on a nice plate with respect, yes? Does that make sense? You don't just like say, well, it's, it's pure prasadam, Prabhu, and just dump it on their lap. So not only that it has to be presented purely, but in a way that people can accept it and people can digest it. And the last thing I'll look at is preaching should be in context also. That is also the preacher's responsibility to make sure they don't take sentences or statements out of context to throw it at people just to support their own agenda. So we should hear and study in context, and we should preach in context. Actually, if one has one own, one's own agenda, one has no business preaching. The only agenda we should have is the agenda of Krishna and the agenda of Guru. And therefore, we'll be willing to present the Shastras fairly in context, even if it makes us look like a fool, or even if it doesn't support a position that we want to have. So, again, for hearing with rapt attention, with purity in body and mind from realized persons in the association of devotees, understanding in context, repeated hearing, systematic, with a view to application and a view to attachment, and teaching also with purity in life, in disciplic succession, making it relevant to people in their own life, to their time, place, and circumstance, and honestly in context. So I'm sorry I went a few minutes over. We'll blame that on the long kirtan. Questions, comments, corrections, additions, subtractions?